Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. This is Tuesday evening. Jesus is talking on the Mount of Olives with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He's just spent all day Tuesday reaming out the Pharisees, giving them parables, talking about how the kingdom was going to be taken away from them. And that fits right in with the theme of the Olivet Discourse, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, as I take an Orthodox preterist approach to this Olivet Discourse. Jesus has already, in previous verses in chapter 24, talking, talked about the false prophets, the false messiahs, the earthquakes, and so forth that were going to come during the as birth pangs before the Great Tribulation, which is the destruction of the city itself. Now, he continues here in verse 31. He says, he will send out his angels, Jesus said. He will send out, God will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of the sky to the other. Let's start out with that word elect. Elect refers to the chosen Christians of the world. It does not refer to Jews. And so right now, if you have a pre-trib view of the tribulation, you've got a problem because the Christians have been jerked out of the tribulation there are no elect Christians to be had, and yet, according to this futurist view, this future pre-trib view, there will be an elect there gathered out of the, the elect who are the so-called tribulation saints who will be gathered up. That's not what Jesus is talking about, a future tribulation. He's talking about the tribulation that occurred during the three and a half years before the destruction of Jerusalem in the Jewish War, AD 66 through 70. Now, the city has already been burnt down here. Then the sign of the Son of Man in heaven will come, as we saw in the, and he will become, uh, he, he will come on clouds, and you will see him coming on the clouds, seated at the right hand of, the, of, of, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven will appear. The sign that it will appear is the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's gone down now by the time we get to verse 31. And in verse 31, Jesus says, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. And you say, well, what's that got to do with AD 70? Well, first of all, we translate angels, angelos, angelos or angeloi, I guess it is, or whatever the, the plural is of angels. The singular, angelos, means uh, a, a messenger. It can mean an angel. But it can also mean a messenger. And in fact, Young's literal translation translates this verse this way. And he shall send his messengers with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his chosen from the four winds, from the ends of the heavens unto the ends thereof. So these messengers that are going out to gather the elect are ministers and preachers of the gospel. This is according to John Gill and Adam Clark, and I agree with them. These ministers and preachers of the gospel, these messengers, these quote-unquote angels, they would spread all over the world of the Gentiles after the, after the fall of Jerusalem because now you're not having the Jewish authorities squelching the ministers of the gospel like you see all through the book of Acts. That's not going to happen anymore. Now, a futurist might object to this and say, look, this preaching of the gospel, which you preterist claims is being referred to here, would not take place before this generation passed away. In other words, Jesus in verse 34 said that all these things would take place before this generation passed away and preaching of the gospel did not finish being having been taken place the preaching of the gospel would not have taken place before that generation passed away but jesus said that before that generation passed away all these things would take place well, that's, a, that's not a good objection because the beginning of the gathering of people would take place 70. before that generation passed away. The gospel was going out between A.D. 30 and A.D. 
the, the messengers were being sent out, gathering the elect from the four winds, the four corners of the earth, from one end of the sky to the other, the gospel was spreading forth. Now, what about this trumpet? He shall send out his angels with a loud trumpet. Now, of course, dispensationalist, futurist, literalist, they love to take these things literally, that noun literally, trumpet. Well, I will submit to you in just a minute that trumpet is not literal, it's symbolic of something. But before I do that, let me point out the inconsistency of literalist, hyperliteralist, I should say, dispensationalist. They don't take the four winds literally. The elect from the four winds are Christians living in the sky, or the elect living in the middle of the four winds. If you want to take it literally, that's what it says. So dispensationalists will say, trumpet's got to be literal, but four winds is metaphorical for four corners of the earth, which again is metaphorical because the earth doesn't have corners. All right, so what does trumpet symbolize? Adam Clark says it symbolizes the gospel, and so does John Gill. Clark says this, The trumpet is the earnest, affectionate call of the gospel of peace, life, and salvation. John Gill says the trumpet symbolizes the year of jubilee. The word jubilee means a joyful shout, sound of the trumpet. Of course, the year of jubilee in the Old Testament was the time at the 50th year when all debts were forgiven and redemption took place. The year of Jubilee is when all captives were set free, and this is a perfect type of what Jesus does for the elect. So the sound of the trumpet is the sound of Jubilee. Also in the Old Testament, as John Gill points out, in the Old Testament, trumpets were used to summon the people for worship and to summon the people for battle, which, of course, fits here as the messengers of the gospel go out preparing people for battle, the battle that's necessary to spread the gospel, to prepare the people for worship, to worship God. Isaiah mentions a trumpet. In Isaiah chapter 27, verses 12 through 3, 12 through 13, and this trumpet is not literal, it is not physical. On that day, says Isaiah, the Lord will thresh grain from the Euphrates River as far as the wadi of Egypt, and you Israelites will be gathered one by one. That's the same idea as here, gathering, gathering the elect will be gathered one by one. On that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those lost in the land of Assyria will come, as well as those dispersed in the land of Egypt, and they will worship the Lord at Jerusalem on the holy mountain. Now, this is obviously symbolic. Whatever this gathering of Assyria, from Assyria and Egypt, all this gathering language in the Old Testament is typological of the gathering of people into the church. Gathering of people to the Old Israel in the Old Covenant is typological of the gathering of the elect in the New Testament into the church. But whatever it means... A great trumpet will be blown on the day that the lost in Assyria and those who are in Egypt start coming back to Israel. There's no great trumpet blown back then. This is obviously symbolic so here, and it's very, language is very similar to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Here's some other scriptural Old Testament examples where trumpet is not literal. Isaiah 58.1, cry out loudly, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins. Jeremiah 6, verse 17, I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen for the sound of the ram's horn. But they protested, we won't listen. Those are symbolic. Mark 13, 27 in the parallel passage here says that he, God, will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds. As I said, the angels are the messengers of God. Gather his elect from the four winds, four winds from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. It's the same idea. But the idea of four winds is left out. It just says end of the earth because that's what four winds means. From the end of the earth to the end of the sky, the four corners of the earth, four winds are all, all metaphors to mean all over the place. People are going to be coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ from all over the world, which is exactly what has happened. And to me, which is one of the greatest vindicators of Christianity, just to think that 
Jesus' religion, which started out with 12 fishermen, is now all over the world. And he predicted it right before he died. Here's what Adam Clark says. Quote, Nothing contributed more to the success of the gospel than the destruction of Jerusalem happening in the very time and manner and with the very circumstances so particularly foretold by our Lord. It was after this period that the kingdom of Christ began, and his reign was established in almost every part of the world. So this scripture fits right in with the worldwide spread of the gospel. Psalm 107, verses 2 through 3. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the hands of the foe and has gathered them from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. Again, that idea of gathering, gathering into the old covenant Israel is like gathering their elect into the new Israel, the church. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 33. Jesus continues, Now learn this parable from the fig tree, he tells his disciples. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the wintertime, the branches are dry and brittle, and then in springtime comes, the sap starts running through the branch, and it becomes tender, and it starts sprouting leaves. So it's springtime. You know that summer is near because summer is near to springtime. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. So this is a parable of the fig tree, and its main point is to show that there are certain signs that will tell you that Jesus is near, that the destruction of Jerusalem is near, right at the door. Now, what are all the things? When you see all these things, you know that Jesus is near. Well, he's already told them in all of that discourse. Well, there's wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, that kind of thing. Now, some people, some futurists say that this fig tree refers to the nation of Israel. So the parable would read like this. As soon as its branch become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near, and then you will see that he is near at the door. So when you see Israel revived into a Healthy fig tree, that means Jesus is coming back. Now, of course, these guys are Israelologists, Israelitors, everything Israel, Israel, Israel. And if you talk about, well, no, the purpose of the Old Testament prophecies was the, was the church. Then they start screaming about replacement theology and how you're anti-Semitic. And so they just, they what they do is they say that the fig tree stands for Israel. Well, the problem with that is, is that the only time that the fig tree is referred to as Israel by Jesus, the victory is cursed. This is on Monday morning, the day before the day where we are now. He was walking into Jerusalem in Matthew 21, verses 18 through 19. Early in the morning as as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again at once the fig tree withers. So, if futurists want to say the fig tree blossoming refers to the re- reestablished nation of Israel before Jesus comes back at the end of world, the world, they've got to deal with this passage where Jesus cursed the fig tree. There was no, there was no redemption of of the of Israel of the fig tree Israel. There was no prosperity of the fig tree Israel. It was cursed, never to bear fruit again. Now think about that, never. May no fruit ever come from you again. That sounds pretty final, doesn't it? Does that sound like there's going to be a restored fig tree at the end of the world? I don't think. The fig tree was just an example of what all trees do in the spring. They sprout. It wasn't meant to be a special symbol or sign. It was merely trying to... The point of the parable is to compare the little signs, the, the, the tender twigs and the little leaves that were sprouting. Those are signs to tell you this that summer is near. Likewise, there are going to be signs to tell you that Jesus is coming to destroy Jerusalem is going to be near. Matthew 24, verse 34. And here is the preterist, most 
favorite verse. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. There's your time indicator. Everything that Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse will happen while somebody in that current generation was still living. Somebody was going to still be living, and all that stuff was going to take place. So Jerusalem was going to be a heap of rubble, and some of the people that were living at that time were going to see it and live beyond it. I remember reading somewhere that a, few, a certain futurist said, this is the preterist's favorite verse. If you deal with preterists, you will hear this verse over and over again. That's probably the only intelligent thing that futurist ever said. The only reasonable thing the futurist ever said is it's true. Yeah, I love this verse because it tells you when all this stuff is going to take place and futurists have got absolutely no way to explain it. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, who took a futurist interpretation of this verse, that it was the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. It was embarrassing to him because he was a futurist. If he had taken a preterist view, it wouldn't be embarrassing at all. It would make an awful lot of sense. And I'm going to give you there four ways they try to explain it. And you will see that none of them make a lick of sense. Now, you know, futurists love to take the Bible literally, especially dispensational futurists. Hyper-literally is the way I put it. Well, what does this generation mean literally? It means the people that live there, and a generation is roughly 40 years. It means that 40 years are not, certainly not going to pass away until all these things take place. They're all going to happen within approximately 40 years. If you want to interpret the scripture so literally, why not this verse too? Let me give you a quote from John Gill. Certain it is that John, one of the disciples of Christ, outlived the time by many years. So he lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. And as Dr. Lightfoot observes, many of the Jewish doctors now living when Christ spoke these words lived until the city was destroyed. So the, that generation did not pass away because some Jewish doctors were still living when, the, when, the, when Jerusalem was destroyed. As Rabbi Simeon, who perished with it, or Yochanan ben Zakkai, who outlived it, or Zadok, or Ishmael, Rabbi Zadok, Rabbi Ishmael, and others, this is full and clear proof that not anything that is said before relates to the second coming of Christ. Let me repeat that because I love this quote. Not anything that is said before, i.e. in the Olivet Discourse, relates to the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment and end of the world, but that all belong to the coming of the Son of Man in the destruction of Jerusalem and to the end of the Jewish state. John Gill. He states very clearly, this is the destruction of Jerusalem, not the end of the world. Here's two scriptures that when you compare them show that John was still living in AD 70. And if, if John is living, he was one of the people that Jesus was talking to. And that that generation would not pass away. He's part of that generation. He did not pass away when, when Jerusalem went down in AD 70. Matthew 16, 28. Jesus says this, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is right before the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is Jesus who's saying, some of you who standing here, that would include John, who will not taste death. And all the other apostles got killed before 8070, but John didn't. So some standing here will not taste death. So that would be one who, John at least, who didn't taste death when they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, the Son of Man coming to judge Jerusalem. He didn't taste death. John 21, verse 22, If I want to re him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, referring to John. What is that to you? As for you, follow me. I think he's talking to Peter there. And Jesus says, look, if he's going to remain until I come, i.e. until I come to judge Jerusalem in eighty seventy, if I want him to remain, John did remain. He made it through. What is that to you? Peter did not make it. He got killed in the 60s. All right, so let's look at some proofs that this generation is referring to the generation that Jesus was talking to then. 
This generation where used everywhere else in the New Testament refers to the generation then living. Not a future generation, but the generation then living. The prime example of this showing that the context of the Olivet Discourse is the generation then living, and I emphasize then living, Matthew 23, verse 36 through 38. This is the same day, earlier in the day, when Jesus was in Jerusalem. He said this, I assure you, all these things will come on this generation. This is in verse 36, chapter 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Your temple is left to you desolate. Your temple's going to be destroyed. So Jesus, in verse 36, talks about this generation coming, having things come upon it. And two verses later in 38, it says, Your house is left to you desolate. So this generation is directly connected to the destruction of Jerusalem. What could be clearer? Now below, I'm going to give you a list, an exhaustive list, of all other uses in the New Testament where we see this generation. Now, we're not going to talk about Matthew 23, 36, so I just talked about it, and we're not going to talk about the, the, the phrase in the Olivet Discourse, because that's in controversy in the parallels. But other than that, every other use of this generation means the generation then living, not a generation 2,000 plus years after Jesus was speaking, which is which futurists are going to have to rely on. They're going to have to believe that if they're going to continue to believe their futurism. Here's Matthew 11:16 And to what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to each other. That's the generation then living, Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's proclamation. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is talking about the generation of the Pharisees and Jews that were then living. Matthew 12, 42, the next verse. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. So obviously this generation being raised up with the queen of Sheba is talking about the generation then living at Jesus' Jesus's time. Mark 8, verse 12, but sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? I assure you, no sign will be given to this generation. He's obviously referring to the generation of the Jews he's, that are looking for a sign when he was living. Luke 7:31. To what then should I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? Luke 11:29. As the crowds were increasing, he began saying, This generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Noah. Jonah, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. This generation is obviously referring to the generation then living at the time of Jesus. Luke 11:30. next verse. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Next verse, 11, Luke 11:31. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Luke 11:32. the next verse. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Luke 11:49 through 51. Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill him persecute so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets since the foundation of the world. Verse, um, Luke 11, verse 50, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. 
Luke 17, 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Did that happen 2,000 plus years, or did that, did that happen at the crucifixion? Acts 2.40, and with many other words he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. Folks, this is a slam dunk. This generation means the people that were living when Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, which means that all the events had to take place before that generation passed away and died, which means that the Olivet Discourse has got to be taken to refer to the destruction of Israel in AD 70, not the end of the world. Almost all commentators before the rise of dispensationalism took the this generation phrase to mean as people then living. Here's some examples. The great Puritan scholar John Lightfoot, in his A Commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica, Hence, it appears plain enough that the foregoing verses are not to be understood of the last judgment, but as we said, of the destruction of Jerusalem. There were some among the disciples, particularly John, who lived to see these things come to pass. With Matthew 16:28, compare John 21:22. that's two verses I just compared for you. And there were some rabbis alive at the time when Christ spoke these things that lived until the city was destroyed. Thomas Newton. It is to me a wonder how any man can refer part of the foregoing discourse to the to the destruction of Jerusalem and in part to the end of the world or any other distant event when it is said so positively here in the conclusion all these things shall be fulfilled in this generation here's a quote from Robert G Bratcher and Eugene A Nita quote the obvious meaning of the words this generation is the people contemporary with Jesus nothing can be gained by trying to take the word in any other sense other than its normal one in Mark, the word always has this meaning. Here's what John Gill says, quote, This is a full and clear proof that not anything that is said before verse 34 relates to the second coming of Christ, the day of judgment, and the end of the world. But all belongs to the coming of the Son of Man and the destruction of Jerusalem into the end of the Jewish state. D.A. Carson, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, my old seminary. He was there. I guess he's still there. Quote, this generation can only with the greatest difficulty be made to mean anything other than the generation living when Jesus spoke. He wrote that in the Bible Expositor's Commentary. William Lane, another scholar, he's noted for writing a book, uh, study in Mark. Quote, the significance of the temporal reference has been debated. Yes, it's been debated, all right. But in Mark, this generation clearly designates the contemporaries of Jesus, and there is no consideration from the context which lends any support to any other proposal. Jesus solemnly affirms that the generation contemporary with his disciples will witness the fulfillment of his prophetic word, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem and the dismantling of the temple. Adam Clark, quote, this chapter contains a prediction of the utter destruction of the city and temple of Jerusalem and the subversion of the whole political constitution of the Jews and is one of the most valuable portions of the New Covenant Scriptures with respect to the evidence which it furnishes of the truth of Christianity. Everything which our Lord foretold should come on the temple city and people of the Jews has been fulfilled in the most correct and astonishing manner. So there you have it, folks. This generation by Comparing Scripture with Scripture in the Scriptures, it always means this generation. That means it's the generation that Jesus that was contemporary with Jesus. Second argument in proving that this generation means this generation. What part of this do we not understand? Jesus didn't say that generation that will be living at the end of the world. He said this generation. Now, if he had said that generation, futurists might have a case, but he didn't. He said this generation. Now, let's look at how futurists try to get around their problem here. And boy, do they have a problem. I've got four options, and I'm going to show you that every one of them doesn't meet muster. Option one, generation means race. 
Now, you, I, I've heard this a million times when I was younger. Futurists don't use this one too much anymore because it's pathetic. So you won't see this too much. But the idea is this race of Jews will not pass away until Jesus comes back at the end of time. The race of Jews will still be in existence when Jesus comes back at the end of time. The NIV margin even has or race, and I don't know why they do, because it doesn't mean race. Almost no futurists use that argument anymore, that I, that as far as I can tell. Now, here some lexicons and translations that say it means the word means generation and not race. I think it's Ganea, if I remember correctly. Thayer, Arndt, and Gendrick, it means generation. No major Bible translates it as race. And think about this. Does that make any sense? Let's just say it's properly translated as race, which it is not, but let's say it is. So we would, so Jesus would say, this race of Jews will not pass away until all these things happen to the Jews. Well, what does that say? Essentially, it says the Jewish race will not pass away until all these things happen to the Jewish race, until the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes happen to the Jewish race. Well, of course, the Jewish race is still going to be in existence while they're suffering wars and rumors of wars. And so then Jesus says, and the Jewish race will not pass away while all this is happening. That tells you nothing. It's absurd. Of course, the Jewish race is going to be around at the very end. I mean, let's say it's five million years from now. And Jesus comes back. Is the Jewish race going to still be here? Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll still be here. I'm sure they will be. And so what kind of time indicator do we have? Are we given any inclination as to when these things might take place? Do we know when the twig gets tender and the sprouts begin? Do we know that summer is near? No, because the Jewish race could last for millions of years, and we've got no indication of when something's about to happen. That is absurd. Option two, the future is used. It, when it, Jesus says this generation will not pass away it means that generation living at the end of the world right before jesus came back would not pass away well, the answer to that is well, why didn't jesus say that generation he said this generation and as i spent a lot of time saying or just earlier this generation always means the generation of jews and living everywhere else is used in the bible why would we make an exception here unless it's a special pleading to prove an impossible futurist case option number three a futurist could do this he could decouple the three questions of matthew 24 3 you remember the three questions were, number one, when will these things take these things take place, meaning the destruction of the temple? And question number two is, what will be the sign of, the, of your coming? And question number three, what's the sign of the end of the age? Now, if you put all those three things together, and when you get to verse 34, and Jesus says, these things, when, this generation will not pass away until these things, i.e. the destruction of the temple, the sign of the coming, and the end of the age, will pass away, then that means everything's got to happen before 40 years from the time that Jesus spoke. Well, that, of course, precludes the coming of Jesus at the end of time. So what the futurists could do here, and if I had to defend the futurist case, and God forbid, I hope I never do, but if I had to, this is what I would do. I, would, I think this is their strongest argument, as weak as it is. You've got to decouple that first question. When will these things, the destruction of the temple, take place? Okay, that's 8070. We'll give you that. Say that. The futurist. We'll give you that. But now questions two and question three don't have anything to do with that first question of the destruction of the temple. When Jesus, um, when the disciples ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age, they just completely made a, a category shift. They immediately jumped from asking about the temple to the end of the age. Now, I've, I've shown in previous videos that the, the previous audios, the disciples had no idea of Jesus dying, resurrected, and coming back. It was totally off the radio scope. There's no way they could have even thought of asking a question like that. The end of the age is the Jewish age. But even getting all beyond that, why would they shift their question right in the middle as they asked the question to Jesus? You can't decouple questions one, two, and three to make questions two and three 
sign of the coming sign of the end of the age refer to the future in question number one, the destruction of the temple referred to AD 70. You just can't do it and maintain your sanity. You just can't. All three questions were answered by this, by uh, the answer in verse 34, this generation won't pass away until it'll happen. Now, Here's another refutation of this decoupling argument. We link these things in verse 33 and verse 34, and we'll show you that coming is part of these things. Verse 33 says this, In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. In other words, his coming is near. So that's question number two, coming, when you see all these things. That means all these things that occur in the Olivet Discourse. Remember that he is near right at the door. Verse 34, I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. So one verse later, we got the same phrase, these things and these things. Verse 33, these things include Jesus is coming. He's near right at the door. He's coming. In verse 33 and verse 34, these things will happen before that generation passes away. So his coming will happen before that generation passes away because his coming is included in the phrase these things. The futurists can't answer that. No way. Option number four. Ah, uh, here's my here's a good one. Double fulfillment. Some or all of what happens in the Olivet Discourse will happen again in the future. So we'll give to you, Preterists, that all this stuff happened in 8070 because you make such a strong case. But it's all going to happen again when the temple's torn down stone from stone. Well, there's going to be rebuilt temple in the future. And it will be torn down stone from stone. And there's going to be wars and rumors of wars in the future. And, and on and on and on and on it goes. This is foolish, ignorant speculation. Speculation about the future is impossible to prove. As Moses Stewart, the 19th century theologian, said, this speculation about the future cast, quote, cast us on the boundless ocean of imagination and conjecture without rudder or compass. So I don't argue about the future. You want to believe the future? You want to believe all your speculations about the future? Good luck to you. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, here's a question of interpretation that doesn't really affect whether the Olivet Discourse is preterist or futurist, but we'll look at it anyway. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Is that literal or is that hyperbole? Is it metaphorical? If it's literal, that means heaven and earth is going to be destroyed at the end of time. But then, of course, you've got a problem there. How can the earth be redeemed from its bondage to decay in Romans 8 if it's destroyed? Well, I think that's a pretty good objection. But if I were impelled to answer that objection, I would say, well, the passing away of the heaven and earth can, can refer to the form of the earth passing away as it changes into the redeemed earth. Well, okay, even if that's so, that doesn't affect the Protestant interpretation of the Olivet Discourse at all. I think, though, that a better interpretation of this heaven and earth shall pass away is that this is Hebrew hyperbole, and the Hebrews were very good at this. Here's a modern parallel example. Hell will freeze over before my words will pass away. Well, obviously, hell's not going to freeze over, but it's hyperbole, just like heaven and earth are not going to pass away. In other words, the thought of heaven and earth passing away is so absolutely and utterly absurd it's just as absurd to say that my words are going to pass away. It's going to happen, folks. Jesus was quite confident about his prophetic ability. Now, here's an example of Hebrew hyperbole, Isaiah 54:10. For the mountain shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness now shall not depart from thee. Neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on me. In other words, the mountains are going to fly away and the hills are going to move before my kindness leaves thee. And of course, this not meant that mountains are going to move and that mountains are going to leave and the hills are going to be removed. Now, this phrase, heaven and earth, might be Hebrew probably, but David Chilton has an interesting idea. He was a preterist theologian, wrote a nice big fat book on a lot of preterist 
on a preterist topic and some other books too. He says that heaven and earth refers to, is a rabbinic phrase that refers to the old Jewish order, which they were administering themselves. And I have not been able to run that down yet, so I don't know whether that's true or not. I'll throw it out there just in case somebody knows. Some people say that heaven and earth passing away is collapsing earth rhetoric, decreation rhetoric, which symbolizes regime change, judgment on a kingdom. So Jesus is saying here, the Jewish kingdom is going to be destroyed, but my words won't be destroyed. Could be. Now we need to talk about another issue here in verse 35, which is very key. Well, it's actually going to be more key when we get to verse 36 in the next audio. But right here, some preterists take this as a hinge verse where we shift from talking about the Olivet Discourse till we talk about the end of the world. Because Jesus says, heaven and earth shall pass away. That sounds like the end of the world. I don't believe this, but some preterists do. Some preterists say there's a shift to the future in verse 35. Some preterists say there's a switch to the future in verse 36. And other preterists say there's no switch at all. In Matthew 24, the whole thing refers to the Olivet Discourse. Now, I'm not going to bet my life on the proper answer to this question. I am going to assume there's no switch at all, because I think you can go through the whole chapter, and it, it works pretty good. In fact, you can, you can actually go into Matthew 25, still talking about 80, 70, pretty good. Until you get to the very end of it, I have some problems. But that that's a long theological discussion on verse 36, and we'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.